Thank you, Devin. And we do thank God that He has blessed America in so many different ways, and uh, we don't always deserve it as much as uh, we experience His blessing, but we desire that we might uh, deserve it as best we can by following after His principles. Well, this uh, morning we continue our series on there really are reasons for hope, and for some, uh, it's been interesting having dialogue with people throughout the week, both in the church and outside the church, and for some, they're saying, this makes so much sense. Can we just go longer and longer and longer? And the other people are saying, when are we finally going to get over this series, you know? For some, they come across and they're saying, I, I'm, I'm just uh, clarifying some things that have been very helpful for me. And some people are saying, I leave this place thinking I'm dumber than I ever thought I was. I can't figure out what you're saying. It doesn't make, doesn't make any sense for me. Well, hopefully you're somewhere in between uh, those two extremes. Oh, actually, I guess you're in the extreme for some of you that I, I'm simplifying it too much. And for some, I'm not making it clear enough, which means I'm not making it as, as simple as I'm trying to do or clear as I'm trying to do. But really, uh, what we're trying to do is fulfill one of the passages of Scripture uh, found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. He should be the leader of our lives. And if that be true, then we're prepared to do whatever He wants us to do. And the Bible says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, which is a poetic says. A way to say simply that we want to be prepared to give some reasons or answers for why we really believe and have hope in the midst of a world that sometimes seems to be hopeless. Uh, when, you, when you see that all the things that happen and could happen, we, we wonder who, who could be in charge if, if these things are happening in such ways that bring such heartache and pain in people's lives. But the truth is, there is a God, and that God has revealed Himself, and He's knowable, and He has called us to love Him and to follow Him, not just with our heart, uh, though that means a lot more than we normally think it means. It doesn't mean just our emotions. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and what's the next one? Mind. He wants our mind to be engaged as we follow Him. And so that's the goal of this series, is to give us some reasons uh, to see why we really should have and can have hope in God for whatever comes our way. Um, so we're going to introduce it a little bit and then try to move on to some, some new material this morning. Uh, but first of all, I want you to recognize that God has promised that we can have hope. Uh, Romans fifteen thirteen is one of my favorite passages. It says, this, Now may the God of hope... Uh, fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And it's interesting, any time the Scripture kind of gives an adjective, or not kind of, does give an adjective of God. Who is your God? Well, He's the God of hope. We often think He's the God of love, and that is true. He is the God of, of holiness and justice and righteousness, but He is the God of hope. He's the one who gives people a an assurance that whatever you're going on in the present, whatever you experienced in the past, you have a future that you can look forward to. He's the God of hope. And because of that, you ought to experience joy and peace. But how does that happen? It happens only if you really believe. And in your present believing is when you experience hope. Uh, God can give you a gift, but unless you're believing and receiving, you're not going to experience in its fullness. And then he goes on and says, so that you may abound in hope. He doesn't want you to have a little hope. He wants you to have a lot of hope. And you get that hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't get it by just saying, if I was just smarter, I would have more hope. 
or if I just knew more Bible verses by heart, I would just have more, more hope. Uh, if I was just more whatever, I'd just have more hope. Now, you get hope as a, as a gift uh, of the Holy Spirit when we're relying upon His power and strength, not our own. So really, we've been going through a series. There really are reasons for hope. And the Bible really alludes to that, but I, I'm, I'm trying to set this up in a way in which uh, what, are the, what are the memorable things that we can take home? You know, what's going to be on the test? And there's a lot of detail we've been throwing out, and we're not going to remember every detail, but w- what are the bullet points that we can hold on to and be able to even possibly share with others as well as help our own hope and faith grow stronger? And I've taken off on a, on a resource. It's uh, by Dr. Frank Turek. He wrote a book called Stealing from God, which basically says, how, how does anyone live a sensible life in this world if you believe there is no God, and you have to steal from God, a God you say you don't believe in, to actually live in a world God created, and you have to, based on His reality, His principles, to actually have, make sense of anything in life. But another way to put it, and I put it this way, are there crimes I commit intellectually when I refuse to believe in God? And sharing with some of you, you have friends, and, and I heard it in the first service, heard it uh, and people from the second service, I, yeah, I have some friends, and they say they don't believe in God. There is no God. Uh, they, either they claim to be an atheist or an agnostic, agnostic saying uh, it, it's too unbelievable to put your confidence in some supreme being in your life. Well, when we say that or tell others that, uh, are there some crimes, are there some things we commit intellectually against ourselves when we hold that worldview or that position? And, and I would say that is true. The Bible puts it this way in Romans 1.20. It's in your outline. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. And, and that's like a person who, who can see what's right in front of them, but they won't acknowledge what is true. Being understood through, understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. It's really speaking to this individual who might say, well, if I just had more evidence, I would believe. And God says the problem is not enough evidence, it's your unwillingness to acknowledge the evidence and, and believe it and have conviction in it. The Bible is pretty uh, abrasive about the person who says there is no God. Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Now, the person who doesn't believe in God, they are reversing that verse that's found in the Bible. They are saying, you who believe in God are fools. And so there are really you know, only two options. Uh, you have reason to believe in God. We have reasons, more reasons to believe there isn't a God. You have to decide that. You have to come to that conclusion. And so this is what we're going through in this series here, and hopefully it's going to be helpful for you as we, as we wrestle with it this morning. Um, uh, but as, as we pursue that, I... I um, I, I want to say that, and this might be really uh, unbelievable for some of you, but, but as I preach, I, I, I do try to practice what the preacher says, all right? Have you ever heard that before? Are you practicing what the preacher says? Well, I gave a challenge for, for you this past week, if you had the opportunity, to, to speak to someone you know and care about, uh, maybe a friend or a neighbor, and ask them the question, well, have you ever come to the point in your life where you've put your hope in God? rather than just your circumstances or the things around you. Have you ever come to that place where you actually put your hope in God, or are you just, just kind of wishfully thinking that your circumstances are going to turn out, out all right? Well, um, as I was thinking about this week, and I was um, 
I was with some, I was at, with a neighbor actually asked me if, if I'd go flying with him, not that I would fly, but he would fly and I'd be his co-pilot or I would sit there and do nothing while he flew. And then afterwards we had opportunity to talk and stuff and, and this popped in my mind, ask him the question, ask him the question. You know, I said, uh, have you ever come to the point in your life where you've put your hope in God for your future or are you just hoping your circumstances work out? And then for a moment, he, he just, uh, you know, he didn't know what I was talking about. And he go, oh, yeah, oh, oh. And, and then he proceeded to answer that question. And, and then I said, well, w- would you be interested in me telling you why, or at least some of the reasons why I believe there is a God and it's not just wishful thinking? And so then I just simply try to present some of the material I've been sharing over the last number of weeks. I said, well, just, for instance, consider, consider creation. I mean, as you look at the physical world, how would you explain everything you see happening just by chance? Did, did someone put this into being, or did no one put this into being? I thought about that for a moment. Now, you can pursue that a little bit further, and we talked about it in this whole, this whole series, is that uh, now scientists who used to think that the material world has always been, you don't have to explain something coming into existence if you've always been. Like, for instance, uh, for myself, if, if I've been eternal, I've always been this age, and I've always looked like this forever, I, I wouldn't have to explain how I got here, right? But the reality is I haven't always been here, right? I, I came into existence, and, and you, you could explain that with Biology 101. Well, the Bible says, uh, not the Bible, the, the scientists would have to agree to this, is that everything that has a beginning has a cause. Something brought it into existence. The universe has had a beginning. It hasn't always been here. So something had to bring that into existence, and we would say that's God. So consider creation. Creation speaks of God. In the beginning, who, who started it all? God created the heavens and the earth. So how do we explain the physical world? We explain the physical world is that something, someone brought in existence, and that would be God. And again, what we're trying to do here is we believe that Jesus is God, but Jesus couldn't be God unless there is a God. Does that make sense? And so we're giving reasons to believe it, and the Bible tells us that we ought to have reasons to believe. Secondly, consider reason. How would you explain not the physical world, but the non-physical world? How would you explain people being able to relate to reason, uh, to love or hate, or feel a sense of accountability for their actions? That's not physical. It's non-physical. How do you explain personality? How do you hold someone in your hands and say, is anybody in there, you know? Well, how do you explain that? Well, you have only two choices. Either there isn't anything beyond the material world, that there is no person inside. It can all be explained by the synapses that are firing in your brain. Or, Or there really is a mind. There really is a personality. And it makes much more sense that there really is a God who started this all off because you can't explain personhood apart from a God. And then last week we looked at information. And information, as you think about all the information in the world, for instance, the DNA, uh, in the DNA, they've, they've been able to d- determine there are 3 billion bits of information that's in one molecule of DNA. The, the funny thing that happened to me in this conversation with my friend, uh, when I got to this third reason, he said, I, I asked him the question, do you know how many, how many bits of information that is in every molecule? And you know what he said? Three billion bits. I said, where did you know? I learned that in the, uh, he, he always uh, reads um, the, um, 
just popped out of my mind. He, uh, the, um, oh, man. He, well, anyway, he just, he, he um, I'm going to get it right in the middle of the sermon. But he, yeah, he says, I, I read that in the, in the, in the newspaper I, was, I read every week. And so uh, he, had, he had had that awareness of that information. And the point about that is there's all kinds of data out there, but how do we explain data like words coming together to form sentences and sentences to form paragraphs and paragraphs to form chapters and chapters to form in books apart from an author? And then the DNA within our body, you could have those bits of information, but you have to have someone organizing in such a way that life begets life. Well, today we're, we're going to look at a, a particularly other approach to this. Is As you think about God, just consider morality. How, how do you decide things being right or wrong? How, how do you determine that? I was um, just thinking about Brandon being here as I, I play pickleball with. And when we play pickleball, uh, you know, when, when something the ball is hit outside the line, how, how, well, why should I call that out when I want to win? I'm going to call that in, you know. How, what, what makes something right or wrong in terms of anything in life? If, if it's all about me, which normally that's how I think it is, it's all about me, you know. Um, why, what I sh- why should I decide that there's some kind of moral code out there? What, what explains that? Because if we're just a bunch of molecules and we're, if we're all about what happens within our DNA, why should I submit to someone else's standard about uh, anything in life? Why don't I just make a preference to win at any cost and it doesn't really matter how I win? And so as we look at it this morning, we're going to look at that. The Bible says it this way in Romans 1, 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. W- which basically says this, and we're going to see this a little bit later in this particular message this morning, is it's not that people don't know there is a God, but they, they want to deny it. They want to suppress the truth. And we've talked about this before. My, my mind is made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. And and really, I don't want there to be a God because that God might tell me what he wants me to do or not do. And, and so as we, as we get people to think about God, we, we want to bring them to that point where they have to wrestle with, well, how do you explain things being either right or wrong? Or, or maybe you think it, it, there isn't any really right or wrong. That it, it's all up to what's popular today. People get to decide what's right and wrong. It's, it's whatever, whatever poll we might take or whatever vote someone is involved in or whatever the Supreme Court might say or not say, that, that's what's right or wrong. But what it does there, it denies that we would all wrestle with objective moral principles. There, there are certain things we would all agree. I don't care how people... De- are, are in their political perspective, whether on the left or, or the right. There, there are certain things everyone agrees is either right or wrong. You know, take, for example, w- w- would anyone that you can even imagine argue whether torturing babies for fun is all right? W- w- would anyone say, well, yeah, you know, if, that's, if that's how you're wired, if that's where you get your kicks... Far be it for me to push my morality on you to say what you're talking about, what, what you want to do is wrong because that's just how you're wired. That's who you are. So here's the premise, and then I'm going to show you a, a short video that kind of explains it in, a, in another way. 
If, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Which really is saying this, if, if there isn't a moral lawgiver, if there isn't someone who is above and beyond us, how do you explain something being essentially, objectively right or wrong? Because it's just your opinion and my opinion. Does that make sense? Well, we all agree that there are objective moral values. You know, racism. Is racism, can anybody defend racism? I mean, that's evil no matter what perspective you're looking at. And then thirdly, if moral, starting beginning, if God does not exist and objective moral values do not exist, if objective moral values do exist, then therefore God exists. I want you to have you watch this quick video. It's about a five-minute video from uh, Dr. William Craig. He's going to take this and expand a little bit, and then I'm going to try to summarize it in a few moments. Can you be good without God? Let's find out. <laughs> Absolutely astounding. There you have it. Undeniable proof that you can be good without believing in God. But wait. The question isn't, can you be good without believing in God? The question is, can you be good without God? See, here's the problem. If there is no God, what basis remains for objective good or bad, right or wrong? If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. And here's why. Without some objective reference point, we have no way of saying that something is really up or down. God's nature provides an objective reference point for moral values. It's the standard against which all actions and decisions are measured. But if there's no God, there's no objective reference point. All we are left with is one person's viewpoint, which is no more valid than anyone else's viewpoint. This kind of morality is subjective, not objective. It's like a preference for strawberry ice cream. The preference is in the subject, not the object. So it doesn't apply to other people. In the same way, subjective morality applies only to the subject. It's not valid or binding for anyone else. So, in a world without God, there can be no evil and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. God has expressed His moral nature to us as commands. These provide the basis for moral duties. For example, God's essential attribute of love is expressed in His command to love your neighbor as yourself. This command provides a foundation upon which we can affirm the object of goodness generosity, self-sacrifice, and equality. And we can condemn as objectively evil greed, abuse, and discrimination. This raises a problem. Is something good just because God wills it, or does God will something because it is good? The answer is neither one. Rather, God wills something because He is good. God is the standard of moral values just as a live musical performance is the standard for a high-fidelity recording. Without your love. The more a recording sounds like the original, the better it is. Likewise, the more closely a moral action conforms to God's nature, the better it is. But if atheism is true, there is no ultimate standard. So there can be no moral obligations or duties. 
Who or what lays such duties upon us? No one. Remember, for the atheist, humans are just accidents of nature, highly evolved animals. But animals have no moral obligations to one another. When a cat kills a mouse, it hasn't done anything morally wrong. The cat's just being a cat. If God doesn't exist, we should view human behavior in the same way. No action should be considered morally right or wrong. But the problem is, good and bad, right and wrong, do exist. Just as our sense experience convinces us that the physical world is objectively real, our moral experience convinces us that moral values are objectively real. Every time you say, Hey, that's not fair, that's wrong, that's an injustice, you affirm your belief in the existence of objective morals. We're well aware that child abuse, racial discrimination, and terrorism are wrong for everybody, always. Is this just a personal preference or opinion? No. The man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says 2 plus 2 equals 5. What all this amounts to, then, is a moral argument for the existence of God. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. But objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. Atheism fails to provide a foundation for the moral reality every one of us experiences every day. In fact, the existence of objective morality points us directly to the existence of God. So really what we're trying to do is just get people to think. Think, why is it you believe in God? And at this point, we're just thinking about those who struggle that there is a supreme being in this universe that brought in everything into existence. And we, we want to lead them to, to believe that God has fully revealed himself when, when God the Father sent his son and he invaded history 2,000 years ago and became a man and, and, and lived the life only God could live and then went to the cross and, and died for us and paid the penalty only he could pay that we could have life with him. And as we think about, well, why would we believe there could be a God like that? Because as we think about a life that we live, it makes absolutely no sense apart from there being a, a, a God and a good God. You know, how, how do we explain creation? How do we explain reason and the ability to, to relate with one another? How do we explain all the bits of information being able to put together so that life forms actually come into being and have ability to function? But everything else in life in which things are formed together, but as we're trying to look at today is, well, how do we explain morality? How, how do we explain people choosing to do that which is right rather than that which is wrong? How, how, do we, how do we even wrap our mind around something like Memorial Day? If, if our lives are only material things and it really is all about the survival of the fittest, why would anyone be willing to sacrifice their life for the benefit of others? Why would, why would someone die, be willing to die on a battlefield or fight the battle that others are not fighting uh, when they're not, they're not going to have the opportunity to take advantage of that? Because they see a higher good. Well, where does that higher good come from? That higher good has to come from God. I don't know if you ever thought about that. If you, if you take God out of the word good, what are you left with? One letter. And, and that letter, if you put it in a numerical value, would be a zero. 
what you're left without God is really nothing. Because God is the source of everything, not only the physical world, not only the non-physical world, not only everything formed in such a way that life actually functions. But even as you think about it, something as simple as right or wrong, who decides? Where does it come from? And we are constantly wanting to change that. Look at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 in your outline. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know, what, what are we all tempted to do, no matter where we are in our spiritual journey? If um, we're not feeling good about what we've just done, you know, that's the experience of guilt or shame or remorse, and, and, and we can't go to someone who could forgive us and, and make that which we have done wrong, wrong forgiven and made right, we just, we just change the price tags. We say, well, you know, what I just did, that wasn't wrong. And, and we rationalize it. And that is nothing new to our culture. That's been done from the very beginning. Is people say, well, you know, that wasn't really that bad. You know, that wasn't really wrong. That was okay. That was it. I, I thought it was right at the moment. And it become, everything we do becomes relativistic. But we can't really live sensibly if that is true. And, and we wouldn't want that to, to live that way. I don't know if you're familiar with a man named Jesse T- Timidakwas and, and a Megan Kanka. But a number of years ago, this, this little girl named Megan, seven years of age, and she got home from school and wanted to go play with a neighbor child. And so she went to cross the street and go to the home of one that the family knew really well. Uh, but when the time needed to be where that little girl would come home, uh, the parents called the home and, and the parents said, well, she never, she never got here. She, she hasn't been here. And so what the parents did is like we would all do. We, they rallied all the neighbors, and they had this search for finding Megan, their seven-year-old daughter. They called the police, and there was a mass search for this little child. In the midst of that, they, they discovered there were three individuals within their community that had committed some heinous crimes against children and abused them. Two of them were, weren't there at the period of time where the child was lost, but one was, and his name was Jesse. And, and they found Jesse, and they confronted him. He denied uh, being involved at all with this little girl. And, and yet the more investigation, they discovered that he had actually taken this little girl named Megan, lured her into his home, raped her, and then fearful that she might tell, she would tell, they strangled her. He strangled her and took her life. And, and through that particular incident, Megan's law had arose from that because as a society, we felt it was wrong for people not to feel any sense of protection knowing who might be in their community. Now, now God can forgive anyone of any sin who fully repent and believe, but, but what was happening there is the society rose up and said, now there's got to be certain things that we would all agree are, are wrong, and we need to do everything we can to protect that. Where does that come from? Or, or take the Holocaust, and we're going to take a group to Israel this, uh, this, this coming November, Lord willing. And think about that. Maybe, maybe you have met people. I have, I've had conversations with people as well as read those who, who write in this particular vein. And, and they'll deny that what happened in World War II, that Germany put six million Jews to death. And they said that's just some right-wing conspiracy that have made all this a hoax. And they, and they deny what happened in terms of a partial genocide of a whole human race. 
And then you think of the Nuremberg, Nuremberg trials. What happened in terms of the whole world rose up and took German officers who were leading this whole movement and put them on trial saying these are crimes against humanity. Well, who decides that? Because there was, there's an insane logic to, to Hitler because he looked at survival of the fittest and felt that their particular human race was above every other human race. Well, why should we allow a certain race pollute our gene pool? Let's just get rid of them. Well, who gets to decide between right and wrong? I mean, is it just who empowered that moment and, and the majority that might go down a certain path? And you take any of God's commandments or any of God's rules, and, and they aren't arbitrary. They're, they are for our own good, but God knows what's best. And, and whether it's premarital sex or adultery or whatever it might be, God decides, and He, he does it to point people to the, the right direction and, and to abuse people because that's what turns you on or to, to be... Involved in fits of anger and violence that, that just allows you to blow off some heat. Well, you can justify that. But God drives people to, t- to, to take our sin, to commit it to Him, and say, not only do you need forgiveness, but you need power over your sin. You know, as you look at it, there, there's only a few ways to look at life in a sensible way. You know, sociology really is a whole discipline in which It's decided how people behave. You know, is it nurture or nature? How do we explain the way people act or don't act? But morality is not observing or saying how people act, but is how people ought to act and behave. The dilemma is who determines the moral standards and what makes something moral or immoral. Atheists, those who don't believe in God, choose not to believe God or believe there is no God, they can be, I'm not saying that they can't be moral people. They can be moral people, but, but how do they justif- justify and sustain morality? And, and we're living in a time in Asian America where everything's changing from a moral perspective. What was considered evil is now considered good, and that which is considered good is now considered evil. I want to close with a couple of quotes What really speaks about the battle for morality and evil, but also speaks about the reality of who God is, because how, why is there even, a, why is there even a, a, a debate about these things if there is no objective one who put these things into, into play in terms of what's right and wrong, and it's not just a personal opinion. Dr. Richard Dawkins, and we've referred to him in the, in the, in the series, but he is, uh, he's written a book called The God Delusion, and if, if you're here and you believe in God, he'd say you're deluded. And not only are you deluded, but you're deluding other people. He's aggressively saying, and I I think I I shared that quote where he said, you know, I've written this book, The God Delusion, that those of you who do believe, after you read this book, I can convince you, you should not believe there is a God. And and maybe you're right now at that place in your life, you're saying, well, you know, my parents believe, and they've raised me up in the church, and the reason I'm kind of Christian bent or, or... uh, have a, a God idea is because that's how I was raised. And, and what Richard Dawkins would say, well, the reason that's happening because you've been deceived and people have been teaching that which is not true. And there comes a point in all of our lives where we have to decide, well, is, am I the way I am because that's how I was raised or am I the way I am or, or the way I believe because this is true? Each one of us eventually is going to have to come to that place in our life where we are convinced we are true because we have looked at the evidence and 
the evidence points and directs us what is real, authentic, and true. This is how Dawkins deals with the morality issue. The universe has no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. So he would reject the premise that we have objective moral standards. He says, really, there is no such thing there. We just kind of choose to believe what we believe and live like what we want to believe. DNA never, neither knows nor cares. Because basically you are, you, you are what you see. You're just material. There's, there's, you know, sometimes when I, I got, since I've just seen Brandon here for the first time, you know, sometimes I'm with Brandon and I look in his face and I go, are you really in there? You know, are you really in there? I mean, is, is he, you know, when he something, does something bizarre, okay? You know, we, we sometimes wonder about that. We're thinking, well, you know, is the light on? Have you ever thought about that person? Is it, you know? And basically what Richard Dawkins, a renowned scientist, has said, you, you are just what you are materially. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. You are, you are determined by whatever chemically is happening in your life. Now, there is, a, there is a correlation between our body and our soul. It affects each other. But he's saying you're only body. And then, however, he makes this thing. I've always said that I'm a passionate anti-Darwinian. A Darwinian basically is a person who believes that we evolve over t- periods of time. There is nothing that guides it or directs it, no intelligent design or a personal God, an intelligent being. It just happens. And that's what he believes to. He said, however, I'm going to be hypocritical when it comes to that as it relates to morality. Because if we live in a society where it's only about the survival of the fittest, if I'm stronger than you are, I'm going to... I'm going to persevere and if i have to you're not because i can i can overwhelm you i don't want to live in a world like that i've always said that i am a passion anti-darwinian when it comes to the way we should organize our lives and our morality so within his own worldview he has to be a hypocrite because there is no reason to be good you know why be good there is no such thing as good but I'm also struck by a, a professor, Thomas Nagel, in, in the university. He said this, It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. Isn't that how we are? I mean, I'm, I hope I'm right in what I believe about Jesus, what I believe about God. But this is what's interesting. He said, it's that I hope, I hope there is no God. And really, this is what this series is all about, is that we can live life no matter what we're going through and things happen that are good or pleasant in our life and unpleasant. We'll use that phrase. There are things in our life that we wish did not happen, and we have things in our life we wish would happen. Would you all shake your heads like you're still listening to me? I can start all over and preach again, okay? So you're all listening to me still? We all have that. Let's, let, let's be real. We, we have things happen in our life, and we go, oh, why did that happen? And, you know, God, if he's all-powerful, why didn't he stop that from happening? And where is God when things don't look good? All right? But what hope gives us is no matter what happens in our present experience, and we live in a fallen world, and you haven't got it yet, bad things are going to happen. It, but when we look in our future, we're convinced that we can look forward to the future because he's got it in his hands. No matter how bad it gets, it's going to get so much better. We, can, we know the end of the story. Our team wins. But he says this, I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read a quote like that, and I've talked to people personally like that, why would they say that? It, it, it's, 
it's one of the things that brings us here together, we realize, and, and also the person we believe is the answer to it. We're convinced there is such a thing as a three-letter word that begins with the letter S, and the central middle letter is our problem, and our problem is I. And you put those three letters together, it's S-I-N, sin. And sin is a, is a direct line to the issue of morality. There are things that are right and wrong. And God is going to hold us accountable to that. And when this life ends, if there is a God, and if you don't want to deal with the sin in your life, you're going to hope there is no God, right? I don't want to face a holy God with my sin, so let's just hope there is no God. I'm hoping there is no God. Why? Because I don't want to turn from my sin. I want to do whatever I want. And, and see, the, 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 the issue of morality, which is a reason to believe in God, because how do we explain morality in any form apart from God? It does drive us back to the reality of what the Bible says plainly, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that there's going to be a consequence for our sin, for the wages of sin is what? Death. The judgment of God. But, but the good news is the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and so the issue of morality is not only a reason to believe there is a God, but the issue of morality is that which drives us to a Savior. And, and, and His commandments, as the Bible says in 1 John, it says that it, they're not burdensome. They aren't, they're not to overwhelm us. It's to bring us into life. God not only wants to give us eternal life, which is quantity of life, He wants to give us quality of life. And that's why He said, I have come to give you life and have it more abundantly. But the only way that's going to happen if we're driven to the point where we see and believe and are convinced there is a God, that God has revealed Himself, and He wants us to enter into His life by putting our faith and trust in Jesus. I, I threw a so what question at the end. If I could prove this Christianity is true, would you repent and believe? And obviously, t Thomas Nagel, who says, I, I hope there is no God, I don't want there to be a God, probably if he was honest, he'd say, no, I, don't, I wouldn't believe, and if you could prove it to me. Why? Because I don't want that to be true. And I, I, I've had conversations, I can see their faces still up in front of me um, throughout the years where, you know, we've talked about Jesus, and, and I brought him to the point and say, look, I, you're smarter than I am, so I'm not trying to say I'm smarter than you are, but let, let's just say what I'm telling you is true. Would you then give your life to Jesus? And a number of them say, well, even if you could convince me it's true, I would not believe. And, and then I asked them, the question, well, why? Why wouldn't you believe? Because, because I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And see, what God is pleading for all is say, look, come to the point where you're convinced that what I have revealed to you is true, about that I do exist as the supreme creator of this universe, but also I've loved you so much that I've entered history. I became a man. I lived a sinless life. I went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, rose again so that you could have life. Give me your life. And I'll change everything. The reason we can have hope, because there is a God, and He's revealed Himself. 
and he invites us to believe. Let's pray. For all of us have, got, have to come to that point in our life where what we believe about God is, is something that we have come to the conclusion and, and it, it's our choice. It's our commitment. And Father, I, I, I just recognize that the Bible says that he wants us to love him with our, our heart and our soul and our mind. And Father, I would pray that you would speak into each one of our hearts and our, our minds today and our soul and, and really cause us to really wrestle with our own convictions about who God is and who Jesus is. And if we'll surrender our lives to you, the Bible says that you'll forgive us of all our sin. You'll enter our life and make us a new person on the inside. But we've got to believe and we've got to commit. And we've got to turn from our own ways and turn to your ways. And then, Father, if we do that, we know that you will, you will make us a new person on the inside. But, Father, on the other side, if we already know you, Father, then you've given us the privilege of talking to others about Jesus. So live the life and, and look for opportunities to share the life. And, Father, I would pray that we might be so concerned about others that we're praying for them and looking for ways to point them to Jesus. Father, I pray for each one here that have come to that point in their life where they've invited Christ into their life. And, and then if we have, might we just be praying for those who need you. And might we live in such a way that draws them to yourself. And we praise in Christ's name. Amen. If today you'd like to talk.